In the podcast, Nice White Parents reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. And we're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. Someday we'll get back there. The last two weeks, we brought you comprehensive coverage of the Democrat and Republican National Committee. Now we're on the road to November. I want to thank everyone for passing the word to your friends and family about our show. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, our guest, was the vanguard for the Democrats' ascension in 2018. Connor Lamb won a special election in western Pennsylvania early that year, and then a big victory in November. A political legacy, his grandfather and uncle were prominent Democrats in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania. He's a graduate of my second favorite school, the University of Pennsylvania, and your favorite military unit, the Marine Corps, and a former prosecutor. Thanks for being with us, Congressman Lamb. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Kenosha and violence scares some Democrats. Uh, Some people call them bedwetters. Joe Biden came to your hometown, Pittsburgh, to give a law and order speech. How did it go over? It went over well. Um, You know, I think the biggest thing that comes across with him is his sincerity. And in particular, he is sincere about the fact that you, you don't have to choose between these things that the president always tries to make people choose between. You know, he talked about bringing police and communities together. And if you've ever worked in law enforcement like I have, you know that that's an everyday part of the job. Uh, People that work in law enforcement want to be close to the community. They want to do a good job. They want to walk the streets and have the people that live in these cities be proud of them and feel comfortable talking to them. And it makes everybody uh, better off. But, uh, you know, it's been a while since we had a national figure like Vice President Biden stand up and and kind of speak out from the heart in favor of, of common sense and compromise. And it's, it's just a really nice thing to see. And I think people here reacted to it well. Well, Trump obviously believes that the race card, he went to Kenosha to fan those fires, and violent crime is his calling card for November. Are you one of those concerned about that? No, I think, um, you know, I, I've talked to probably tens of thousands of people around Western Pennsylvania in the last couple of years in the course of running in these campaigns. And and I trust people to have some common sense. And what Vice President Biden said is right. This is happening in Donald Trump's America. Like he has fanned the flames. He has is not making it better. He's making it worse. Um, you know, the idea that that a child would cross state lines with something like an AR-15 and shoot people in an environment like this and that wouldn't be condemned, it would be encouraged by this whole political movement that the president is part of. Is, is something that really scares people. And I think they understand that. And that's not to pin 
any particular death or crime on the president or anybody else, but it's about the role of a leader in trying to create a, a climate where you can lower the temperature. And I think that's what Vice President Biden talked about. And that's a real thing. People understand that. Congressman, some of your district is really Trump country. Beaver and Butler counties went heavily Republican in 16. How does it look now? How does how is Biden doing in Western Pennsylvania, you say, in comparison to Hillary Clinton? Uh, I think he has a, a better chance here is the way I would put it. I mean, obviously, there's no there's no scoreboard. You have polls all over the place. Um, it can be a little bit harder to tell. But I, I do think that that Vice President Biden speaks the language of all of Western Pennsylvania a little bit more. You know, he came from the type of household and the type of background that a lot of our folks came from. Um, he, he sounds like somebody that would be in one of our families. And he talks a lot about jobs. He uses the word jobs a lot and it has a credibility coming from him. You can tell he's passionate about it um, and that he's not given up on anybody. He's not given up on any industry. Um, he wants to people, see people work to build the same kind of middle-class life that he had. Uh, and so I, I think that's going over pretty well. And you, you just don't see the, the same level of kind of resentment toward him. And I think that's in part just because kind of the way that he is. So you, you I'm very accustomed to it in the past that people would kind of run away from the national ticket. But but I gather that you were with Vice President Biden when he, he gave the speech. And I think he came with one of the few people that when you ran and you're a great campaign manager, by the way, I just love Abby to death. And you actually feel like he's somebody that you can campaign with in your district. Is that a correct analysis? That's right. Yeah. Like I said, I think he just, uh, I think he speaks the language here. He feels like one of our own. And, um, you know, you hear around here a lot, people talk about kind of old school Democrats or, or the Democrats of JFK and FDR, particularly out in these areas in Washington, Beaver, Butler counties, Westmoreland, um, a lot of these people are still registered as Democrats, even if they haven't voted as a Democrat in a national election in a really long time. But they they never took the step of changing their registration because they still believe in a lot of the things that the Democratic Party stands for. They, they just wish that we looked and acted a little bit more like maybe some of the people they remember. And I think that, that Vice President Biden is pretty close to that for a lot of them. And what always comes across to me when he comes here to visit is just the amount of respect that he has for working people of all kinds and the way he shows it and the way he stops and, and talks and listens to each one of them, uh, no matter who they are, no matter who they vote for, it's it's refreshing. And I think that does open some doors here that other candidates would not be able to. So kind of I don't like I don't know what the dichotomy is. I, I, I call it idealist and realist. And I would consider myself and you entrenched in the realist camp. I, I, I don't know if you know, people would say it's the far left or. or whatever. And if this election turns out like I hope and I think it will, the Democratic House caucus and Senate caucus, if anything, will be more toward the realistic side of things. Because if we pick up some some House seats, they're very likely to come from suburban districts. And the Senate seats, if, if we're successful, as I hope and think we're going to be, are going to be Cal Cunningham and going to be Mark Kelly, going to be John Hickenlooper, going to be Steve Bullock, going to be Al Gross, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if people, if, if a lot of the people say to the further left than, than we are fully appreciate that the change that's going to come in 2021 
is not exactly what they think. I think you're going to have a, a very realist, pragmatic, increasingly realist and pragmatic caucus in the House and even more so in the Senate. Do you, you share that view? I do. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a, a day to day struggle in some sense to um, to count up votes, particularly in the House caucus, which can can have a much wider spectrum um, ideologically, probably even than the Senate that you're talking about. But I do. I like your word realist a lot, because I think that one of the things that separates realists um, in the international sphere where that word is used a lot is the idea that, you know, we accept certain shortcomings that are just part of human nature, you know, and, and I think that the nature of people is not going to change that much, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are elected uh, in 2020. And just look at, you know, in the midst of a pandemic that we know is killing people every single day, how difficult it can be to get people to do some things like wear masks or stay away from bars or whatever it is, um, you know, so realists are, are, are people that are trying um, not to take half measures, but to take full measures that can actually get done. Um, and I think that separates us from people who are, are proud to stand for an idea, but but not necessarily accountable for how that plays out in real life. And so that's the debate we're going to be having every day. Yeah, thank you for the compliment, because I really struggle hard as to how to make the, the distinction between that, that we're sort of experiencing it. In, in, among Democrats. I think that makes you the, the Henry Kissinger of our side, James. Okay. Is that a compliment? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's the first time he's been called that, Congressman. I, I think he hopes it'll be the last. <laughs> Just a couple things. Fracking, is that a big issue out there? And has Joe Biden gotten right on that? Uh, yes, it's a very big issue. Um, Joe Biden is right on it, but we have a lot more work to make sure people know that. So, um, you know, here's why fracking is such a big deal in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, if you think about these outlying counties that we've been talking about, uh, they used to have a massive number of jobs in steel in particular, and some in coal and some in other types of manufacturing. And these were the types of jobs that sustained a middle-class lifestyle for an entire family. So, you know, people in steel mills in the seventies here were earning 30, even 40 bucks an hour, union wage, great benefits. Um, and over time, a lot of those went away. And as the economy changed, yes, there were new tech and finance jobs and things like that in the city of Pittsburgh, but a half an hour away, at most, these jobs were replaced by $13 an hour healthcare jobs, you know, and not much more until the gas revolution came along. All of a sudden, there were middle class jobs available again for people that wanted to work with their hands and weren't afraid of the elements and wanted to build things. Um, and a lot of people built a middle-class life for themselves and their family again on the natural gas work and by the way in the course of that decade these people in my view contributed more to carbon reduction in our country than just about anybody else because almost all of the carbon reductions we've achieved as a nation have been due to the switch from coal to natural gas and it has done a lot for us overseas by making us more energy independent so there's a ton of benefits that come with it that people around here know about and they're proud of and they're not really asking for for any favors or subsidies or anything like that. They just don't want someone who's hostile to their job and their way of life right now. And so the Trump campaign started spreading this uh, this lie that Biden was opposed to fracking, which he's not. And so he came in his speech on Monday and he repeated it twice for anyone to hear it, that he does not oppose fracking. Uh, but there have been commercials running for weeks here on this subject, uh, repeating the falsehoods of the Trump campaign. And 
And we've got to clean that up. We've got to expose people to what the truth really is. Just a few more, then I'll turn it over to James Kissinger Carville. Um, um, you know, you when you ran, I came out there in, in 2018, and one of the things that you ran on, that you were not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker, you didn't vote for her for speaker. Now that you've served for two years and a half, uh, I think I'd make the argument that she's been pretty good to the, as you call them, the realist. I think that leading the Democratic caucus is a, a tough thing for anybody because we do uh, range across a pretty wide spectrum. Um, and there have been some clear decisions that she's made that have been to our benefit. And I think the right decision, you know, I would say voting multiple times on um, allowing Medicare to bargain for prescription drugs has been an important issue for an area like mine. Um, she worked pretty hard on the, the trade agreement with Mexico and Canada to make it labor friendly. Um, and, you know, a couple of other measures as well that I think have been good. So you're, you're right that um, she definitely does a good job paying attention to the so-called uh, realist faction. But, um, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are pluses and minuses, and I think the left has gotten plenty of wins as well. Well, I'm a great defender. But let me just one just one final thing. And then, James, you take over. I, I agree. I think Biden did did very well this week. He answered the charges. I think Trump is not really succeeding much uh, with this uh, race baiting. But this also was a week, Congressman, without any real national discussion of COVID-19 or the ACA, where Trump is trying to take away pre-existing conditions protection. Uh, if I mean, don't the Democrats have to make sure that Trump doesn't set the agenda every week? And that's a that can be a difficult task. It, it can be very difficult. Um, there's no doubt. And so I, I think that, um, you know, I think Vice President Biden really did a good job during the convention of uh, kind of presenting his own story and his own case and really highlighting his plans for dealing with the pandemic, which uh, is him setting the agenda because they're all places where this administration has just retreated and refused to lead. So so Biden really is laying down his own ideas there when it comes to, you know, mobilizing national resources for for testing and for PPE and for opening schools and stuff like that. Um, but this issue of of Kenosha and Portland and everything, I would argue that that's not really responding to to the president's agenda. It's responding to the facts on the ground. I mean, that's an important story for this nation because people are choosing to do that in places like Kenosha and Portland. They're, they're both protesting for their rights peacefully. And there's another faction that is uh, committing crimes. And I think a, a leader like Vice President Biden has to be nimble enough to say where he stands. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy that he did that because it's common sense. I think that's what most people believe, that they don't want to see anyone burning down a store or destroying property, that that ruins the message of the protesters themselves. It's something that John Lewis would have never condoned. Um, but at the same time, you have to be able to stand up to this culture that encourages someone like Kyle Rittenhouse to go to Kenosha and kill people. And that is not a difficult thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And, and you can do both. I mean, they, they both are about protecting people from violence, even though they're the two types of violence are on a totally different scale. Uh, we have to be against both. I mean, I always tell people I was a prosecutor. I prosecuted everything from murders and rapists down to, you know, young Marines that use synthetic drugs. And I'm against all of it, but they got very different sentences and treatment from me. And that's a leader has to be nimble enough to do that. So I'm a big fan of 2018 campaign we ran and many, many of the people that came to Washington. And of course, I'm very proud of you because you're the kind of senior in that class because you actually won your, your, your seat in a special election prior to that. 
in, I know you, there are your colleagues and you like them all, but could you give our subscribers or listeners uh, maybe a couple of people that you see uh, in the Democratic caucus, younger people that are worthy of keeping an eye on as we go forward that you think have real talent and a real future in American politics? And I, by including two people, you're not excluding other people. I want to be very clear about this. But I'm just I'm always on the shop, on the lookout for young talent in the party. Oh, good. I'm glad. Okay. Yeah. No, we have some. Uh, we have some really good. We have some really good people. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I'm I'm close with a group of us that all were sort of in the military, or um, a couple of them were in intelligence agencies or public service types of jobs. So, um, you know, people like. Alyssa Slotkin, Elaine Luria, Abigail Spanberger. Um, we we talk a lot, work together a lot. Uh, a guy who I think deserves a lot more attention than he gets, um, but he's from kind of the extreme corner of the country, is Jared Golden, uh, who was also a, a Marine, uh, a lot of combat service. And he has the largest district, I think, east of the Mississippi. There's this massive rural district up in northern Maine, uh, which is very independent-minded um, and not easy for, for a Democrat. Uh, but Jared just works the district like crazy. He speaks the language. He's not afraid to to kind of stand up to our own party leaders. And that's something I think you see in common uh, among our group is we're Democrats, but we're all kind of willing to admit that uh, the Democrats are not coming to every issue with clean hands and we have not been perfect for the last generation. And we would like to see some more kind of common sense um, maybe realist to use your word, uh, leadership within our own caucus. And, and we're not afraid to speak up about that while still sort of working as part of the team. And maybe that's what I like about these folks is we all came from backgrounds where we were part of big teams, whether it was the Marine Corps or the Navy or, or the CIA or whatever. Uh, when you're in a group like that, you know that you have to speak truth to power and, um, and have a, a big sense of responsibility for yourself, but you always know that you're part of something larger and it's not about you specifically. You know, your ego is, is not really the most important thing on most days. And so I think we're able to kind of, kind of work both within our own caucus and across the aisle as a team in part because of our backgrounds. Well, that, that's, that's valuable. And I, I completely agree with that. There's, just before I let you go, I just got to put up my mention here. The most dynamic young person, I think, younger person in the Democratic Party right now is Adrian Perkins. Adrian is the mayor of Shreveport. He grew up in a totally impoverished neighborhood. He was the first black brigade commander at West Point. Three tours, a bronze star, president of his class at Harvard, lost two, came back, beat an incumbent two to one. And I think Adrian is somebody, I know it's a very tough race for him to, to win in Louisiana in 2020, but I think Young people like you and Adrian Perkins and people like that really make me optimistic because for a while it was like the Democratic Party had atrophied and we had older leaders and lacked energy. And I, I think there's a lot, a lot of youthful energy in the party that is just waiting to break out. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. I really am. And I would just, without comment, would remind you that there is a competitive Senate race in Pennsylvania in 2022, and I would just leave it at that. Well, and maybe maybe without comment, uh, I'll give you my wife's phone number after this, and uh, you guys can talk future strategies. <laughs> She's, we're about to have our first child, and uh, we're not looking any further down the road than that, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, Adrian, Adrian sounds great. I've heard you talk about him before, and um, he's exactly the type of guy that I hope, uh, you know, maybe if the Senate election doesn't necessarily work out because of how tough it is, 
Um, I know that Vice President Biden is on the lookout for for a lot of young folks to fill out the administration as well. And I, now that I've gotten to see up close, you know, the importance of so many of these administration jobs and what we're trying to do, I hope we can, you know, just bring a whole generation of young people into Washington to work on these things and, and really implement the changes that we need to see. Well, man, this town needs it. That's for sure, Congressman. Uh, you've been great with your time. Uh, and uh, we won't uh, tell your wife uh, that we won't mention the 20. 20- 22 race for at least two and a half months. Okay. I appreciate it. And and thanks for what you guys are doing. I really enjoy every episode and uh, hope you keep pushing them out there. Great. Be safe, sir. Have a good one. Rayshon Ray is one of the foremost experts on police, community relations, and violence. A sociologist, he's a David Rubenstein fellow at the Brookings Institute and directs the center at the University of Maryland's Applied Science Social Services Lab. Hey, Rayshon, it's really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to be on. Thank both of you for having me on the show. When you see and you read about in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake tragedy, shots in the back, his children in the car, police claimed he had a knife uh, in the car. Uh, tell me your take. So I had a, a couple of thoughts. The first thought that I had is I typically try to get as much information as I can. So, I mean, obviously we were seeing uh, cell phone footage. I was trying to see if there was body-worn camera footage. There wasn't, uh, but there was an audio. Uh, Clearly something had happened before on the other side of the car. But the bottom line was that I seen a man who at the time that he was shot did not pose any threat to other people. And, And the officer who was pulling on his shirt to end up being shot seven times in the back. And it's on, it's an unfortunate reality that we have to be very realistic about, which is that black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or when they have a weapon. Now, some of that is a bit, a bit fuzzy about Jacob Blake, but at the time that it happened, the police officers had other tactics they should have used besides shooting him like that. Well, you've studied police departments and I've read where you said some middle-sized police departments have made some real reforms in uh, policing community relations. That does not appear to be the case in Kenosha. Uh, the sheriff there, it's a separate, uh, after they apprehended some black shoplifters, uh, suggested some lives just aren't worth it. And, and, and these cops did not seem to behave in any kind of professional way. Is this, in, as you look at it now, from what you know, uh, is this just one of those police departments that hasn't done proper training? It seems to be the case. I mean, it seems to be that they have a series of problems. The big one, though, is a lack of accountability. Now, training becomes a part of that accountability process, but there is no way that a sheriff or a police officer, deputy or what have you, should be able to be in that position and make a statement like that to say that some lives are not worth living. The last time I looked at it, shoplifting, that the penalty for that is not death. And so we have to be very clear that it doesn't mean that some people shouldn't be arrested. It doesn't mean that some people shouldn't go to jail. But what also shouldn't happen is that law enforcement should not simply take the law into their own hands and kill people whose lives they think are less than. I mean, this is one of the reasons why people say Black Lives Matter for this exact reason is because we see these particular outcomes. And in places like Kenosha, I've studied these places for years and worked with the with departments in these particular places that oftentimes they are under the radar until something like this happens. So, I mean, we'll see broad scale change coming from there, but we need to ensure that we do the proper investigations on the front end to try to not have incidents like this. You know, Rayshon, there are also reports from Portland, Oregon, 
that when right-wing outside agitators come in, one killed someone in Wisconsin, that the police not only don't try to stop them, but almost welcome them. Uh, is, is this commonplace? Is this, I would think this is a huge problem. I mean, it's definitely a huge problem. So Rebecca Shankman and I was a intern at Brookings and also works with me at University of Maryland. We wrote a piece about anti-lockdown protests and the rise in guns. And it, it, it falls into what we've seen in Kenosha and also what's happening in Portland and Seattle. And part of what it is, is that oftentimes when there are differences in perceptions, when people see white people with guns and black people with guns, when they see white people with guns, they think, oh, they're defending things. They are on our side. When oftentimes people see black people with guns, they think that they are criminals and villains. And both of those perceptions are problematic because they stereotype both groups and put them into a box. And instead, what we need to have happen is that when law enforcement sees someone bringing guns to a particular place, and of course, look, I'm from Tennessee. I'm a big Second Amendment person. Um, you know, I think it's everyone's right to do that. But we also need to make sure that we have protocols and checks in place. And really what you're getting at is the rise in right wing extremism. Uh, General John Allen, who's president of Brookings, he wrote a report for the Department of Homeland Security showing the ways that right wing extremism was rising, the way that this was domestic terrorism, a threat to our democracy, and also highlighted the ways that these right wing extremists were infiltrating law enforcement. And there are a lot of examples around the country where that's the where that's the case. And we definitely need to do something about it. Rayshon, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it seems to me over a period of time that when they try these police officers, the verdict tends to come back not as people expected to be or thought it would be. And more, more often than not, they're found not guilty or there's a lesser and included verdict. I mean, a responsive verdict might, you know, it could be like negligent homicide as opposed to murder. It, 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 am I remembering my statistics correctly or is there some factual basis for this? Yeah, yes, sir, you are. I mean, look, in over 90% of the time that a police officer kills someone, um, not only are there not any charges filed against the officer, but um, going to trial and then being found guilty is an even higher hurdle. I mean, basically in 95% of the time when police officers kill someone, that nothing happens at all. And it's important for people to note that over the past uh, several years, that over 1,000 people are killed every single year by law enforcement. Um, this disproportionately impacts the black community. Uh, every 40 hours, a black person is killed by law enforcement. And rarely, to your point, do we see any sort of justice. A lot of this is centered on qualified immunity. Now, what people need to understand about qualified immunity is that it applies to civil culpability. However, meaning police officers can't face any sort of financial um, repercussions or, or have to pay restitution. But the problem with qualified immunity is that oftentimes it becomes to be interpreted as something that applies to criminal courts. And juries, judges, and prosecutors buy into this interpretation, even if the law doesn't exactly read it that way. So that's the reason why, like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for example, that passed in the House of Representatives was aiming to deal with qualified immunity. I think there is another way to circumvent it, and that deals with making a shift in um, civil payouts for police misconduct away from taxpayer money and two police department insurance policies. There are some who are pushing for police officer malpractice insurance. I'm not exactly against that, but I'm definitely in favor of police department insurance policies that comes out of the police department budget 
and away from taxpayer money and general funds, which are monies that could be being spent on education and work infrastructure, which we know actually reduces crime. So we had a, uh, I assume that you're in the camp of people that says that we need policing, but we need effective and humane policing. And we had an earlier guest as a Pitt law professor by the name, I think David Harris. And we asked him, what are some sort of successful examples? And he pointed to Camden for a small or mid-sized city. And he said, actually, LAPD had gotten considerably better. In your mind, are there some models that as, as we go forward that, that we can show to demonstrate why you can have really effective and humane policing come to your mind? So, I mean, obviously, Camden and LAPD are the two big examples that people highlight. I mean, LAPD, obviously, because of what happened after Rodney King riots. And it should also be important for people to note that Attorney General Barr was also the California Attorney General when Rodney King happened. I mean, though, these he similarities. The U.S. Attorney, the U.S. Attorney General. Sorry, U.S. Attorney General at the time. And I mean, these. Th thanks for that clarification. And these important linkages are things that we should look at. You know, I think with Camden, similar to LAPD, what people need to realize is that our society and organizations are similar to humans in a sense. Um, and what I mean by this is when you get sick, oftentimes you get sicker before you get better. So when police departments are making changes, these changes are not going to happen overnight. Like people look at Camden. This did not happen overnight. Things got worse before they got better, but then they eventually got better. So people just need to be patient. But part of highlighting that is the community has to be involved in these changes. That's where Camden went wrong at first. We also have to separate a Camden from a LAPD. Camden did what we would call, they abolished their police department and they rebuilt it. So when people say abolish, for people who are like, oh, we should do what Camden did. Well, you know what? That's abolishing the police department. So if people don't like that term, they need to think about what they might be advocating for, more so why they think Camden did a good job, but they don't like the terminology. LAPD, on the other hand, went through a series of changes to try to weed out bad apples, they did various types of trainings and reinforcement. And even to this day, and I talk to people in uh, LAPD fairly regularly now, I mean, they are also engaging in a series of community-based activities that can really lead to some of the changes. Now, obviously they just had a shooting that people are upset about, but as we see these particular things unfold, there are things that police departments should do. The first big thing is we need city councils in particular to do an audit of their police department. They need to look at how much the police department is costing them. They also need to look at what sort of policies they can layer up, not simply body-worn cameras or implicit bias trainings, which I think matter, but broad-scale transformative uh, reforms to policing, like mandating that law enforcement live in or around the municipality where they work, thinking about housing subsidies, thinking about required mental health screenings, and counseling sessions. These are the sort of things that will go a long way to not just make changes to community policing, but to also help the officers be better people and then better police officers in the long run. So one of the things that I hear that kind of makes some sense, if, if you are a police officer in San Francisco or Boston or Washington, D.C., you really can't afford to live in the jurisdiction. I, I mean, are you a school teacher or a sanitation worker? Or, or any like public employee, it, it's very hard in, in certain urban areas. Housing is a real issue here. And I, I think that there ought to be some idea to subsidize housing for really qualified people to be serving these places. I, I don't know if it, does that make any sense to you? 
I mean, I completely agree. It's one of my biggest reforms for law enforcement, which I then hope will trickle down to teachers and other government workers as you just described. There was a report a few years ago that showed that police officers and teachers cannot afford to live in most major metropolitan areas in the United States. You just mentioned some of them. So if we want police officers living in these communities, we're gonna have to do something about it. And I think the housing subsidy does something in particular. Not only should it be mandated, and maybe that doesn't mean the 20 year veteran who already lives in the suburbs or in a rural area and his family set, but moving forward is that what that will do is a couple things. It will lead to officers oftentimes not feeling as though they have to work overtime or a secondary job, because I really don't think people realize how much police officers work. We've studied thousands of police officers. We've done interviews with hundreds of them. And I can tell you that they are working 60, 80, 100, 120 hours a week trying to put food on the table, particularly as their kids get older, they're trying to save up for college. I mean, when you work that many hours, you cannot function properly. You do not make good decisions. If a housing subsidy is put in place, they are closer to work. It cuts down on their commute and it also allows them to experience the community. What that means is they send their kids to the local schools. They work out at the local gym. They go to the local grocery store and the local restaurants and they start to view the people who they live by as a part of them instead of being against them. Yeah, Ray Sean, I just I want to come back to one or two things. You at, at Brookings, this, this may have been part of what John Allen did. You did a study on what was called the accelerationist, which is that the white nationalists are really trying to foment a lot of this. We talked earlier about sometimes they've infiltrated the police forces, uh, but 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 this is something that has to be publicly discussed because because it really is, I gather, a growing problem. I mean, it completely is. And it's part of a broad history. You know, one of the th reasons why I say bad apples come from rotten trees and policing is because we really haven't put front stage and center that law enforcement in the United States, particularly in the South, but not only in the South, it was also on the East Coast, stemmed from slave patrols. And as we dealt with that, then we went into the Civil War and then we had Reconstruction. And what happened at that point? Well, the KKK came up and what profession did they view as what they needed to get into to hoard power to continue to do what they wanted to do? It was law enforcement. We fast forward to the Civil Rights Movement, 1950s. Um, you had the Emerald Society founded in Boston, a group of Irish firefighters and police officers who viewed it as maintaining their white, their white ethnic identity, even though the narrative today about their organization um, is something that they try to distance themselves from that. And then more recently, these Department of Homeland Security reports showing that white nationalists and white supremacist organizations are aiming to get into law enforcement. This is what people have to realize. I mean, while there have been several incidents from a police officer in Louisiana saying that, oh, it's a shame that more black people didn't die from COVID or the police officers in Florida, including a police chief who was caught going to a KKK meeting. Those are oftentimes the extremes and the outliers. What I see happening are oftentimes white supremacists who are under the radar, who embody white nationalist notions and they infiltrate police departments. And then they aim to roll back accountability. They oftentimes aim to roll up the power that the fraternal order of police has over police officers, and it leads to a lack of accountability in the type of deleterious outcomes that we're talking about today, from Jacob Blake to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor, that I think most people really, really want to get past. Well, James and I both are, are certainly very pro-union uh, uh, people, but police unions are a problem in this, aren't they? 
I mean, unfortunately they are. And I mean, I, I think unions are extremely important, but I think part of what's happened with the fraternal order of police is that they've overstepped their bounds. And it's important for people to recognize why this is. Police chiefs are oftentimes appointed by whoever was elected mayor or county executive or what have you. The fraternal order of police president is the person who police officers themselves elect. Two police officers, the FOP president, particularly if they've been there for several years, like in Minneapolis or in other places, oftentimes carry more weight than the police chief. And this is the thing. One thing I realized very early on with doing research with police officers and on police officers is we put the onus on them to make changes. And that's not where the onus should be. They're going out trying to live their lives like everybody else trying to do their jobs. I know that even personally with the several police officers I have in my own family, if we want to see the changes, these changes come from policy. So what we need to do is we need to deal with the law enforcement bill of rights. That is a barrier. We need to deal with qualified immunity. I mean, some people say that that I don't even go far enough, but my reforms are based on the research that I've done. Like, I think we need to deal with qualified immunity in some ways, but we particularly need to deal with the civilian payouts and how we do that. And we can make those changes oftentimes even without dealing with certain forms of qualified immunity if the police department is on the hook for it. So, you know, the union definitely has a role to play, but policymakers and voters can make those changes if they want to. Rayshon, this wasn't why you had you on, but any thoughts when Donald Trump went to Kenosha yesterday? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a series of thoughts. My first thought was that uh, clearly he wasn't going to talk to the family and offer any sort of condolences. Instead, he doubled down on the 17-year-old who actually shot and killed people. Um, I find it interesting in these narratives that as people are defending the 17-year-old, that there are some comparisons people have made. There are two I'll point out. One is that this man is 17 years old and Trayvon Martin was 17 years old, which actually Trayvon Martin's killing, murder, as I like to call it, started the Black Lives Matter movement when three black women said the statement Black Lives Matter. And we look at the juxtaposition in the way the 17-year-old the in Kenosha was framed versus Trayvon Martin. I think the other thing that we can highlight is not only that, but the way when we look at Kenosha, for Donald Trump's response to this is all about law and order. It's all about aiming to hold up the 17 year old is something that we need to do. And that's highly, highly problematic in this climate. And really what Trump is aiming to do is this. He's aiming to talk to a few groups of people. First, he's aiming to talk to white suburban women. And the RNC was all about that. He's aiming to show them, look, I can't protect you. I will also um, be sure that I maintain your neighborhood and and guess what i'm not racist because i had herschel walker and all these other people come up and tell you that so um it's okay to vote for me the second thing is he's speaking to the 11 percent of white voters who a lot of them are in the midwest but not all who voted for obama in 2012 and then voted for trump in 2016 and then finally he's talking to black men he's saying look that you know you all don't want these things in your neighborhood either because we have to be very realistic that one out of six college-educated black men voted for Trump in 2016. So we put all this together and he's throwing things at a dartboard, essentially trying to see what sticks. That's part of what Trump does, but he's highly effective and people need to actually see through this and see whether or not he's fully supportive of black lives like he is for other lives or whether or not he has a different agenda. So Rayshon, yeah, but this is something I think is insufficiently pointed out. One of the great success stories of modern America has been the impressive drop 
in violent crime. I mean, it, it, it was not predicted at all, and, and people were still trying to scratch their head a little bit as to how it happened. And I think a lot of this is driven a lot by Trump. He definitely sets the tone. And I think COVID has just put people on edge like you've never seen before. And this is just a breeding ground for this kind of conflict that we see. in. does that theory have any validity in your mind that the combination of those two things have just really not just reversed a, a, a kind of impressive trend we were, track we were on for a while in, in modern United States? I mean, I think without a doubt, you know, I mean, we are dealing with two pandemics, not only COVID-19, but systemic racism and more so a racial awakening to the impact of systemic racism. You know, it's it's not um, it's not difficult to make the connections that black people and Latinos are about two to three times more likely to die from COVID and black people are two to three times more likely to be killed by the police for people living in low income neighborhoods. They see how both of those collide on their lives when it comes to violent crime. Obviously, since the 90s, even before the crime bill, I mean, Bill Galston and I, we wrote a piece recently on did the 1994 crime bill cause mass incarceration? And the way we essentially frame it is that not exactly, but it did inflame it. And, you know, the 1986 bill under Reagan that created disparities between crack and cocaine is really what led to increased in arrests and that sort of thing. Even though the crime bill definitely expanded mass incarceration by providing funding for police officers, for prisons and the like. But that drug bill created it where you could have 500 grams of cocaine and it only equates to one gram of crack in terms of sentencing. And when we look at violent crime, to me, that, that's really simple right now. Not only are we dealing with civil unrest, and people are seeing that. But as you all know, when we look at these cities from Portland, Seattle to Kenosha, a lot of this is concentrated in a small geographic area. And look, we don't want to see any businesses or anybody being damaged or hurt in this moment. But we do have to put that in context. The increase in crime is also related to economic angst around the fact that it's a large percentage of Americans who are unemployed due to COVID-19. People are on edge. They can't operate in the same way that they do. I mean, I talk to a lot of friends who are unemployed or underemployed, worried about their job. People are remote learning, essentially, quote unquote, homeschooling their kids. People are stressed out. And a person like Donald Trump is not helping in this moment because even though he might be good on the economy. He's not good at dealing with some of these other issues. In particular, one very important thing to note is that if he had just not aimed to remove everything that Obama did, we I don't think we'd be in a situation. I mean, Obama created the pandemic response unit in the White House that did a great job of locking down Ebola after they learned from H1N1. Only two people in America died from Ebola. And if that group was still in place, we would not see COVID-19 hitting Americans like it is. Rayshon Ray, uh, you have held up the honor of Brookings and the University of Maryland. Uh, more than anybody could expect, you're a terrific guest. And please keep this stuff up, and I hope we can stay in touch. Rayshon, where in Tennessee are you from? Just out of curiosity. Mid Middle Tennessee. I went to college in Memphis, but I'm from Murfreesboro, Middle Tennessee. Grew up in Atlanta, but my mother and grandmother are huge fans. I would be remiss if I didn't say that. But uh, yeah, I'm a tennis native Tennessean, born and bred. My wife as well. And you know, I've, we've lived in all four regions of the country, but Tennessee is definitely home. 
Well, give your, give your mother and your grandmother a big hug for me when, when you can, okay? I will. Thank you. Hey, James, two good guests, two interesting perspectives. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, it uh, gives lie to a lot of what Trump has said. Uh, there's so much to give lie to what Trump has said. I've got a couple different uh, outrages on Trump. You, you could you could fill an entire 24-7 on that. But two things that just jumped out at me. The worst was uh, the story that he had stopped going uh, to Delaware Air Force Base in Delaware to greet uh, the returning caskets of slain soldiers and comfort their families because he was offended by what one father uh, of, a, um, of, a, of a deceased uh, soldier said to him a couple, of, a couple of years, offended, offended? That man lost his boy and we're worried about the sensitivities uh, of this narcissist. I mean, that just, it makes your, it makes your blood curl. It's so offensive. And the second thing is that... Um, he went and made a secret trip to Walter Reed uh, uh, some time ago. Michael Schmidt, great reporter of the New York Times, reports that Mike, Mike Pence was told to be on standby. So it clearly was not something routine. Somebody put out an irresponsible blog that, you know, he may have had a stroke. So the White House was able to deny that he had a stroke, but they won't tell us what happened. So every time he mentions Biden's health, age or anything else, every story, every report, every reference ought to have an obligatory follow that Trump went for some kind of procedure and he won't tell us what it was. Tell us what it was, please, Mr. President. Well, first of all, on the Dover thing, I, I'm not sure a lot of the parents that he followed me, Rose Warning, there's a Terry Times article that just came out. Biden is actually beating Trump among active duty military. It's hard to underestimate how profound that is. That is generally not the case. So. Oh, corporal bone spurs there, you know, maybe there's good reason he stays away because maybe a lot of these people have given so much don't want him there. But I would consider that possibility. I really would. Well, but Democrats went there, James, when, when most of those veterans were voting Republican. I mean, I think this is just a, I mean, th this is just, this is, this is part of the role of a commander in chief. I, I get it. We expect anything out of him. I, I, I just, I don't, I, I expect nothing out of this guy. Pettinism in self-indulgence. And I'm sure he doesn't even respect these soldiers of the airmen, the Marines, the sailors, whoever they are. I just have, I have, I don't have any, every, every expectation I have in is to the worst that you can imagine. And I've got to tell you, all of my expectations are being met. <laughs> you know, as evidenced by what you just pointed out. There's a couple of things that I think more people attempt to do. Kathy Young did a piece on a site called ARC Media that is really worth a read. And Todd Gitlin, who is a, he's a big deal. He's like the head of the Columbia Journalism Outfit. The piece with the former mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, I think it's been USA Today. I, I would recommend both of those. I think they're very insightful. Who did the ARC piece, James? A, a, a woman by the name of Kathy Young, who is a, a or kind of a never-Trumper. But it's a kind of interesting take, and I think it's worth a read by people who listen to the show. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with my question uh, earlier about if 
the facts that come out on the first take, you know, that, that we generally find out more as we go forward. And this is not very, this is not favorable to Trump at all. This is, this is not at all anything like that. Don't get me wrong. But it's, you know, uh, Chris Murphy put out a tweet that said, I've decried, you know, police brutality and the murder of people, and I've decried destruction of property. It literally had to take it down in a half hour. He got so bitterly criticized. And it'd be like you said, you decried somebody that murdered five people. If somebody had murdered one person, you're not allowed to conflate the two. I think there's a, we're making a mistake. And I think Biden has done a good job of saying, yeah, we shouldn't be shooting people and we shouldn't be looting people. They're not contradictory thoughts. But somehow or another, if, if people get the sense that's where this party is, it, 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 it will win, but it's not going to help. Yeah, I know. I agree. Listen, if Jacob Blake's mother can say that, why can't Democrats say that? I, you know, in, back to the sort of divide we're talking about with Connor, and I, I, I really give Biden. A, a lot of credit. He, he's been he's been wise in this, and I think that's what we can. I think what we can expect out of Joe Biden. Maybe we can't expect you know some of the things that Democrats have been accustomed to with Obama and Clinton. You know, that are just sort of once in a generation talents. But I think what we have come to appreciate about Biden is his wisdom, and hopefully, and I think that will. Will do us well going forward. I hope he's able to maintain that. Well, and his decency, uh, which is, uh, I, I think, there's never a time. Uh, you know, I, I I told a friend the other day what what I hope he can be is Jerry Ford with some big accomplishments, uh, and and that decency after what we've been through is terribly important. And I think he brings that, uh, you know, in in, in significant uh, uh, dimensions. One thing, I mentioned this with Connor Lamb, James. I think this has been a good week for Joe Biden. I think you're absolutely right. He did very well in that speech. He really um, said it exactly the way it should be should have been said. He's responding to Trump correctly. I, I Every week, Trump will try to create some diversion. This week, it was a natural one because of Kenosha and police. But there'll be another one next week. It may be more. It may be more race. He'll go race bait every week. It may be red shine another week. And you got to respond to him, but I don't want him to be able to set the agenda every week. And I do think this was a good week. But as I said to the congressman, it was also a week where there was no discussion at all about health care uh, or COVID-19. And, you know, we can't do that many weeks. Yeah, I, 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 I do. But the thing is, is that whether it gets the discussion or not, it's still there. And it, and he, of course, he's going to take every event, and I'm afraid we're going to have more of this because there are a lot of people that, that want more to happen. And I might add, on both sides, <laughs> all right, some people on the far left think this is beneficial. Clearly, it's not even some people, not even necessarily just on the far right, that think this is beneficial. And they. You know, you you have all of these tensions that are on top of it, and you know he needs to. You know, he's responded to this well. He needs to continue to respond to it. But, but you know, all of the other problems haven't gone well. 
I mean, they've gotten even worse. I mean, with the connection between COVID and healthcare, and you know, the diabetes still exists. All of the other problems that people have still really exist. The cost of prescription drugs has not gone down. And um, how many more of these events we have, I don't know. But it, it's going to be a, a, a trick for Vice President Biden and his campaign to maintain some equilibrium because Trump is going to do everything he can to get to get people to forget about this. And he needs to raise his hand and say, look, I, I just want you to know, I haven't forgot about you. And that's going to take some, some discipline and some skill. And I, I hope we'll let that happen. It will. Uh, all right. Well, listen, this has been this has been a really interesting show. Uh, it's been a really interesting week. Uh, and I want to thank everybody out there for listening. Uh, and again, uh, please pass the word on to uh, all of your friends and family and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a good review if you can. Be safe out there. And James, we'll be back next week.